Uh, really quick, give you guys a moving update for us. We are moving, if you didn't know. Um, we, I won't go into all the details of why, but I mean, ultimately we were, it's, we're moving. And uh, we have, we are in what I would call late dating phase with two different places right now. And it is that time in life, if you remember, if you're married, if you remember that time when you were like, is this the date they're going to propose on? Is this the date this is going to happen? You know, all those things. That's kind of how we feel right now. So we're waiting on a couple of things, but we don't have anything to announce. As soon as we feel like somebody has popped the question, we will let you know um, what's going on there. But we are going to have to move in a couple of weeks. And so if you're inclined towards helping with things like that, or if you have a truck, everybody loves when you have a truck. Uh, if you want to help, let me know. Um, we will be, we can tell you this, we will be at the Brickyard for all of April. Um, it's particularly for you people that are online with us. This is an opportunity um, if you're still in that kind of space where meeting outside is the best decision for you, um, that you'll have a great opportunity to come and meet with us through April, starting on Easter. Um, so we are in Genesis, and I'm going to jump on in. We're in Genesis 4. Um, so if you have a Bible, you can open it. If not, it's going to come up on the screen. You can open it in your phone. You can do all the things that you want to do. But it's we got a lot today, so I'm going to go ahead and jump into it. Uh, Genesis 4, uh, I'll start in verse 4. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's get out to the field. Let's go out to the field, excuse me. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you're under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You'll be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I'll be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, Not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. All right, this is a, a truly an incredible passage. And if I'm honest, Jane will tell you, I've probably worn her out talking about all of the different parts of this passage. It's like when Lost ended, if you ever watched Lost, that television series, and that living with me after Lost ended was probably like living with me this week when I read this passage. You could spend days and weeks reading, and I'm sure that's what you guys all want to do, unpacking it, especially if it's your job. And um, for sure, I'm going to run long today. If you, this is the first time you're here and you're like, oh, they like people who don't like church. He'll probably have a short sermon. We're not that kind of church um, in general. And today is going to be bonus. Um, so uh, I'm going to do the best I can. I usually have about four pages of notes today. I have seven pages. Um, I'm just going to do the best I can. Uh, you could, because you could also spend days and weeks missing the point when reading this passage. 
You could be focused on things that aren't really the focus of the passage. And some of that is common to what we've noticed about Genesis in general. It's, it's when we ask an ancient text too specifically about current concerns. It's like I've said before, it's like asking the Iliad to address air currents and flight patterns, right? It is about traveling. It is not about current understanding of traveling. And, and then you get frustrated when it doesn't have the answers. That happens a lot in Genesis. Um, those are like the, where did Cain go to get married questions, right? Who was Cain afraid was going to kill him? Those are some of the questions that we have. And those are fun questions. And maybe if we have time, we won't. But maybe if we have time, um, I'll, I'll get to them. But but the, the text is silent on those kinds of questions because the text isn't concerned. Um, and, and one of the reasons that, the, that, that a text like this is so concise is that you were in an oral culture. Most people didn't read. And so oral cultures needed to focus on the most pressing and repeatable moments if they were going to pass down information. It's not like Google and the newspaper and you can click on link after link after link and find detail. Um, that's kind of the time that we live in, additional information upon additional information. That's not the time that Genesis was told in. It's not the time that it was recorded in. This is a text with a focus on covenant and people and what went wrong. That's really its primary goal. Um, and, and so the, the broadest and best context that we probably need, so if you're going to think about this text and only think about one thing I say in this section, um, is that this passage, Genesis 4, is supposed to both parallel and further explain what happened in Genesis 3. And, and so from a literary standpoint, from a rhythmic standpoint, the same proportions are evident as in chapter three, where you have kind of a single line describing a serious offense, and then several sentences of dialogue between God and whoever committed the offense. Um, God asks questions again in Genesis 4, right? In, in 3.11, God's question is about whether or not uh, they have eaten the fruit and Adam and Eve avoid it. Cain responds just by simply lying. We're no longer avoiding Right now, we're lying and then we're angry. He denies. He's like, who am I? Who am I responsible for? Why do I have to do that? Right. But but all of this is seen as a parallel. In 317, the ground is put under a curse. And now Cain is kind of put under the same curse that the ground and even the serpent to a degree were put under. Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden and Cain is expelled from God's presence and protection. So he doesn't even get the kind of stuff that Adam and Eve got when they were expelled from the garden, right? Food provision is a big deal when both of these things with Adam and Eve, it was going to be hard to work with the land with Cain. It's even worse. He's not going to be able to get anything out of the land, right? And then you see this idea of a, a mark on Cain and really that is supposed to, and I'm actually going to, I'll digress in a minute on that because but anyway, the, the mark placed on Cain is essentially supposed to be a parallel role to the garments that cover Adam and Eve, right? These are both supposed to be seen as acts of grace for God's protective provision, even in the midst of sin-stained environments, right? In both cases, God's response to their recognition of their vulnerability that resulted from their offense is God's going to provide some amount of covering for it. And so there, there, there's been a lot of speculation, and I am going to digress here for a minute, because 
it, it's, it's rampant about what the mark of Cain is. And there was actually, you may not even know this, but you kind of know this when you start to dig into these things in the history. There was actually a time when people believed that the mark of Cain was a darkening of skin. And it was supposed to show that if you had darker skin, that you were cursed. This was a real thing that went around in the church. And what I would say to that is, good Lord, like what a terrible thing for, for the church to, to propagate in order to, to establish uh, hierarchies based on color of skin. And I would also say that this is why people struggle so much with the church. This is one of those things. There's nothing in the text about that at all. This mark is a mark of grace. Um, so that Cain will be protected. Um, one thing is clear about this passage is, is that the, the author is letting us know that sin, once it gets in, always continues and always increases, right? You see the scent. Eve is, is envious of God. Cain is envious of Abel. Eve's actions in envy of God, I want to know like God. I want to be able to have the knowledge that God has. That's almost understandable for us. And Cain's action has nothing noble or understandable about it. It's, it's an increase in the level of depravity, right? But it's also an increase of how that level of depravity affects everything. Right? It affects his ability to secure his future through food. It also removes him from family. If chapter 3 represents the fall of humankind, chapter 4 represents the fall of humanity. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, the fall of the family. If chapter 3 shows how sin gets into the human race, chapter 4 starts to say that sin becomes even deeper in the closest relationships that we have. So, so we hear Cain asking this question, right? Am I my brother's keeper? Am I even responsible for the people closest to me? And the word keeper is a, it's a Hebrew word, samar, which is used in chapters two and three. In chapter two, it's used to describe Adam's job in the garden. He's the keeper. He's the one who takes responsibility for and, and represents God in the garden. In chapter 3, it's actually used of the cherubim that guard the garden. They are now the keepers. People lost the job of being responsible for the garden, and now it's guarded from them. But now Cain is denied that responsibility even for his family, right? Even though he is the one who is responsible for Abel's death, he refuses to res accept responsibility for Abel's life, and, and in that process, he refuses accountability to anybody else. So, so that's the context that this passage is trying to describe, but there is also something else going on here, and this is where we, we're, we're going to get bogged down, but I think in a good way, is that this passage is actually intentional about some of what it is leaving out is that there's a literary device in the Bible that, that we often don't think about in kind of our modern context, but there's a literary device in the biblical text where it intentionally will leave things out. And it's important to notice why does it leave out the things that everybody would be asking about. The most glaring, and you already know this, you could probably say it, I'm not going to, we're not that kind of church where I say, what is it? And you say it back, but I'm going to let you do it in your head and be like, I was right. The, the most glaring thing that's missing is a lack of a clear indication concerning why Cain's sacrifice was unacceptable. 
right? Like we're not told. And, and so what happens as a result, there's other things we're not told too, right? We're not told uh, where God was when he communicated. We're not told how Cain lured Abel to his death or, or what the mark was. We're, we're not told those things. But what happens in our brains when we're not told those things is we try to fill in the gaps really quickly with some sort of universal answer. And so there's all these things out there that like, well, God just prefers some people over other people in general. And it was Cain's tough luck, right? Their whole theology is based around that. There's an idea that because only animal sacrifices could atone for sin, that because Cain's was a grain sacrifice, that, that that's why God didn't accept it. But, but the truth is that, that neither of those are, are necessarily the case. And it, it's our desire to fill the gaps that can get us in a, in a bad place, right? Because maybe, here's the thing we don't think about often with the Bible, particularly in, in, because we don't understand maybe this kind of literature, is, is that maybe it's put there on purpose. Is that there are times when ancient writers would intentionally place a gap or an ambiguity to force the reader to look through and sort out options, to force the reader to participate in the process of relationship that the text is describing. And so here's what we're getting into. Do you guys like the Karate Kid or does anybody watch Cobra Kai? I like Cobra Kai, but I'm not endorsing it, but I like it. But, but Cobra Kai, right, is based on the Karate Kid. And, and this is a Karate Kid moment, right? If, if you can remember back to the first time you saw the Karate Kid, if you haven't seen the Karate Kid, I'm, I'm not even sure why you're here. You should be watching it. And then you come back next week or get offline right now and go watch it. And it's got more to say to you than I ever will. But in the Karate Kid, the first time you watched, if you can remember, I, I was a little bit, because I was a kid, I was a little bit like, yeah, this guy is just getting this kid to do all his chores. Right? You're like, what is happening here? This is not, if I signed up for, you know, whatever, jujitsu or taekwondo, and the guy was like, wash my car, I would be like, this is not what I saw. I'm paying you for what? I don't understand this. But, but you see all these things, right? And, and, and Mr. Miyagi, what's happening is the wax on, wax off, right? He knows more, and he's trying to get Daniel to a place. And this is in a ton of great movies that, that I won't spend that time talking about. But that's what this moment is. That's what this moment is, is there's this sort of deeper thing that, that the text is leading us into, that, that if we just look at it on the surface, we, we don't understand. And, and what's funny is that the way we read the Bible, when, when it doesn't fill in the gaps, we get frustrated. And when it gives too much detail, we, we loop ourselves out like it doesn't apply to us, right? So, so sometimes when you read this with detail, right, you read about the disciples walking with Jesus, and you're like, yeah, easy for them. That's not what my life is like, right? I don't have this particular sort of rhythm. I don't have this particular sort of access. This doesn't happen to me all the time. And what that can make us do is say, well, that only applies to those people. But, but really what Genesis is doing is Genesis and Genesis 4 is saying actual life is full of ambiguities. Actual life and actual relationship with God is full of gaps that we don't understand. And one of the big ones is when it looks like somebody else was favored over us, right? We've all looked at ourselves and looked at somebody else and we've thought, what did they do right and what did I do wrong to deserve this? 
And that's what Genesis 4 is doing by leaving the gaps. Is it saying, don't you know? Genesis 4 really is trying to get you to identify and sympathize and empathize with Cain. Because it's too easy to say, well, bad people do bad things. And I'm not a bad person, so I won't do bad things. Is that, is that the text wants more than that, right? Is that God looks at Cain and he doesn't say, hey, Cain, here's what you did wrong. Go fix it. God looks at Cain and he says, hey, listen, if you do good, which is the word that God uses in chapters one through three when he talks about creation, he says, if you do that, if you focus on that, if you do what you were made to do, then then." Just trust that I'm gonna, you're going to be fine. I know this thing didn't work out the way you wanted it to, but if you do good, just, just keep going. And in the end, we'll get there. But he says, but if you don't, sin, and we'll talk about that word in a minute because it's the first time it's used in the Bible, is going to devour you. And, and so really Genesis 4 is in some ways Genesis 3 in a more re- realistic, familiar setting. We're not all sitting in perfect gardens. We've all been in families that seemed unfair, haven't we? We've all been in environments that seemed unfair. My kids constantly, that's what they do, right? I only have two. I can't imagine those of you that have more. I only have two, and they both constantly accuse me of treating the other one better, right? And and so we know this environment, And, and, and the lack of clarity is intentional. Right? It's intentional and it's, it, it's trying to get us as readers to do a couple of things. One is participate. Right, Increase our investment in the reading. Not just be like we usually do with the Bible, which is like, here's my lesson for the day. Let's go on and live my life. But to actually have to sit in the struggle. Right, That was God's name for his people in the Old Testament. Wrestles with God. Struggles with God. In Genesis 4, if we are willing to let it be, Genesis 4 will let us see that part of relationship with God is struggling to understand. And the other thing it does, honestly, is a literary device for for a culture that needed help remembering things because they weren't writing it down, is that when you're required to see something multiple and compatible ways and work with it, is that it reinforces the story as you work through it. Right? And so, so we ask the question, why doesn't God accept Cain's sacrifice? Well, option one, God hates Cain. Right? God just hates him. He's just God and he just hates him. But the truth is we see throughout the story how generous that God is with Cain. Right? He goes to Cain. He talks to him. He provides for him in the end. And so we got to check that one off. So it's not that God hates Cain. Well, does God hate grain sacrifices? Nope. That doesn't fit with any of the rest of the Old Testament. And so as you read throughout Genesis and beyond, grain sacrifices are fine sacrifices. One of the guys was a shepherd. One of the guys worked in a garden. He, God wasn't just saying like, oh, too bad you got garden. You know, it sucks to be you. That's, that's not what's happening either. And then the other idea is that maybe Cain was holding something back. And, and that might be true, but that's something to wrestle with, right? That's why it's there. That's why it's the point. The obvious question is never answered. And that's part of the amazing beauty of the faith of Christianity. You know, Emma, our daughter, um, she had a a question she was wrestling with a couple of weeks ago. And it was a big question. And and Jane said, tell her what you think. And so I was like, oh, no, because I wanted Jane to tell her what she thought. 
because I didn't know what I thought, honestly. And, and so in, in this moment, usually um, I, I act like I know everything. But, but in this moment, I just said, well, I want to know what you think first. And then we talked about what she thought. And we talked about why she thought what she thought. And, and basically what I tried to do was give her some tools to understand. And, and we all know that that's a more relational, more long-lasting way to come to knowledge. The problem is it's also incredibly problematic, right? The liability of a story like this where you leave stuff out is that everything can become valid. And there can be some horrific consequences, including in this text, right? I said there's this racist interpretation that floated around for a long time about this text. But I think the more fully you wrestle with the entirety of the scripture, I mean, you even see in this passage, right? The idea of being a racist and being your brother's keeper are completely incompatible. And, and the sin here isn't having anything to do with the mark. The sin has to do with not being willing to care for other people in the midst of your own struggle. And, and, and so, so, but when we move beyond the liability, the incredible beauty is that you're thrust into the passage. I feel like Cain. We feel like Cain. And this story does one of those awesome things where it does to you what it is teaching. And sometimes that's the goal of scripture. Sometimes that's what Jesus means when he says, if you have ears to hear. I told you guys I was going to go over today. We're not even to the application. <laughs> so here's my first question. Here's what I want you guys to talk about with the people around you. Don't make Matt be lonely. Y'all help him out, Christy. Y'all right. connect, and I want you to answer this question. Where do things seem unfair right now? And how do you feel about it? Where do things seem unfair right now? And how do you feel about it? And here's the deal. If you don't have an answer for where things seem unfair right now, you're one of three things. You're either, you're lying, which is a weird thing people do in church. I don't know why, but they try to act like they got it all together. This isn't that moment. You're either lying, you're not paying attention because things are for sure unjust and unfair in a lot of ways. Or you're not a Georgia or Atlanta sports fan, okay? Because I can give you six examples in my life from Kent Herbeck pulling Ron Gant off the bag all the way to 28-3, to three, Super Bowl, and beyond. So if you need some of those, take those. So where do you think things are unfair, and how do you feel about it? Go. you got a couple of minutes to talk around you about that. Last thing related to context, just talk over me. It's fine. Um, you'll catch what you need to. I mean that, seriously. That wasn't me being snarky at all. Um, so last thing about context, really quick, I want to talk about this, the idea of goodness and sin. Um, do what is good, sin's crouching at the door. The word for sin is ha-ta'ah. Um, it's, a, it's a Hebrew word, and the reason it's important is this is the first time it's used. Anytime something is used, kind of you have this law of first things in the Bible. And so the first time something is used is super important. It, this goes on to be used over uh, around 300 times um, in the Old Testament. But, but in God's first use of the word, right, he's using a word that is not used or recorded with humanity before. And so he gives it this incredible de description, right? It's crouching at the door. Sin is predatory. And sin has a life 
of its own. And sin hides. Sin initially looks like a fine place to go and a reasonable place to go. You would not walk in. It's like a tiger, essentially, right? Like it's crouching and and ready to pounce. And you wouldn't walk through a door where you knew that there was a tiger there. But but the minute that you walk through it, you're not in charge anymore. The tiger is, right? Like as soon as you get in a room where there's a tiger, it's the tiger's winning, unless you're that guy from the documentary, I guess. I don't know. But but what God is saying, what the author is saying is that this is big and it doesn't feel big when it starts. It feels reasonable, right? Adam and Eve, it starts and it feels reasonable. And even Adam and Eve's response, right? At least they're just blaming people. And then Cain ends up getting aggressive with God. What's your problem, essentially, is what he's saying. Where's your brother? Why would you even ask me? Right? He becomes accusatory of God. There's a, there's a hardening that takes place with sin. There's a place where sin takes over. And what's interesting is it doesn't just take over you. And that's a lot of what Genesis 3 and 4 is telling us. When we sin, it changes the fabric of the world around us. Right? People who are hateful tend to produce hate around them. Right? The he who lives by the sword will die by the sword. And so that's the other really significant portion in this passage. All right. So how do we apply this? Really, the passage is all about marshmallows. You ready? All right. So there's this thing. Some of you guys have probably heard of it. It's a pretty famous study that was done at Stanford University in 1972. It was called the marshmallow test. Anybody heard of this? It's kind of this crazy experiment. It was a little, what, what they did was they would put toddlers in a room and they would put a marshmallow in front of them. And they would say, you can eat this marshmallow right now. But if you'll wait in this room for 10 minutes and not eat it, you can get two marshmallows. Right? Now, that doesn't sound like a big deal to us. But, like, if you're a toddler and a marshmallow's in front of I don't know if you've ever seen. Like, my kids still know when marshmallows come out. They just know that they're there. Right? And, and, and so there was this idea, right? The experiment was measuring how well children could delay immediate gratification to receive greater rewards in the future. And, and what they found actually in this study was that, that toddlers, preschoolers that could hold out longer ended up over the span of time from 1972, I think it was, they did, they did 30 years, might've been 20, I think they did 30 years, that they performed better academically, they handled frustration better, and managed their stress more effectively as adolescents right? It was, it was a 30-year study. Um, I have it marked down here in my notes. This showed that they had healthier relationships and they were healthier physically. And essentially, what you see in this discussion between Cain and God, and I'm not meaning to make light of it, but, but they're involved in a marshmallow test, right? Cain is involved in some level of a marshmallow test with God here. God is saying, like, listen, Cain, don't be so downcast. The word that's used, it's a Hebrew idiom that means don't be so depressed. Like, I know that you're depressed, but don't be so depressed that it didn't work out for you. And the hope is that because we're dealing with God, it's a little less arbitrary than don't eat this marshmallow and you'll get two marshmallows. But at least in this new style of relationship that exists now that Adam and Eve are out of the garden, God is seeking to sow something into Cain that will help him more than just than just diving in to the immediate frustration of his sacrifice not being looked upon. 
right? And, and ultimately what we see <clears throat> through this story, and you see this when you don't try to fill the gaps yourself, is that the gaps start to fill because we see Cain is seriously and obviously flawed, right? Cain has got some serious problems. And God is looking at the bigger picture in this conversation with Cain. And he's saying, listen, start to believe these broader principles. And Cain cannot take his eyes off the marshmallow. And that's a real problem. And it's a real problem for all of us. And some of it is what they've discovered, what social scientists have discovered about our brain is there's this thing, the hypothalamus. And if Sean Shelton is watching this, Sean, I'm about to butcher this, so fill in the gaps. But, but there's this thing called the hypothalamus, which, which kind of controls our appetites. And then there's this other thing called the prefrontal cortex, which we've gotten, it's gotten really popular because it's a good way to not give your kids permission to do things. But the hypothalamus and the prefrontal cortex kind of fight with each other. One of them says, this is what's happening immediately. And the other one says, this is what's going to happen down the road. And so it should affect what I do immediately and how I respond to my immediate needs. And the, the big problem is that the hypothalamus is just a lot bigger than the prefrontal cortex. And so it's actually a wonder that the prefrontal cortex ever wins. But, but, but this is what the Bible is, is talking about, is that when we just respond to what we see and feel and want now, it can be pretty dangerous versus waiting and trusting. And, and, and there are seeds that we sow based on where we land in that struggle, and they are life-altering. They don't feel that way initially. Bitterness doesn't feel that way initially, right? That sense of, I didn't get it, right? Cain is just sitting there. He's, he's reasonably depressed. God has rejected his sacrifice. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like, I did this, this, and this, and God just completely forgot me, right? We bought a Honda Odyssey, and we did the right thing because it's supposed to be a reliable van, and ours was not reliable. And we spend too many nights thinking, why us, right? Like you do these things, we do them in small, in big ways. Cain feels like life isn't fair, right? And not only that, his brother won and he didn't win. And everybody knows all of the bad things and the missteps that their brother took, right? We all know them. We all know the flaws of our siblings. And when they win and we lose, it just feels that much more bitter. Right? He's probably walking through all the comparisons with Abel. He's probably either landing on, because this is what we do, I'm better than him, and so I deserve that, or I'm the worst, and that's why God hates me. And neither of those is good. Right? It's me or it's him. One of us is going to win with God. He's the one making me feel this way. He's the one making me lose. And if I can get rid of him, I can get rid of that feeling. Right? I don't have to deal with any of this anymore. I don't have to be depressed anymore. And that's how we land in the worst of atrocities that our world experiences. Sin starts small. Sin looks reasonable. But unchecked and unaccounted for, it spreads to everybody and everybody and, and everything. And it leaves us wondering, how did all of this get so bad? All right, question two. We're almost done here, guys. How do we respond to our initial pains of feeling rejected? 
How do you respond to the initial pain of feeling rejected? Do you fall more on the I'm the worst spectrum or do you fall more on the somebody's going to pay into the spectrum? And if you say, well, I just try to learn from people, we're all very impressed. But before you try to learn from people, how do you feel? So I told you guys it's all about marshmallows, right? The marshmallow study. So, so for a long time in the marshmallow study, what they thought was that the ability to lay gratification was just something that was in your personality from birth. And, and so there, it was unchangeable. But, but they've continued studies on this, and, and I'm going to talk about two more of them. But one of the studies shows that the reliability of the adults around them affects whether or not kids can resist temptation. Is that if they think that the person that's promising them something better later is trustworthy, then they'll hold out. But if they doubt the trustworthiness, they won't. And, and, and this is Cain and God, right? This is us and God. Is that God reaches out and he says, listen, Cain, don't let this ruin your life. Isn't that funny, right? Like this, Cain's so myopic about this moment. And God's looking at me, he's like, take a breath, brother. Like, it's going to be okay. Like, I'm not leaving you. We have this sense that God... God didn't look upon Cain. That's what it says. We have this, all it says is look on Cain's sacrifice. And our response is God must have rejected Cain completely. But that's not what happens at all. God says, this is just a thing. It's not everything. It's not everything you are to me. This moment in time. And if you trust me and stay close, we will weather this. And one of the things that I would ask us today is, can, can we do that with God? Can we stop? When we feel rejected, can we breathe? Can we rest? Can we go find places where God's goodness and God's trustworthiness are on display? You know, one of the big things for me when I start to feel overwhelmed, and this is me, it doesn't have to be you, is that I go walking over at Kennesaw Mountain. And I just walk around. And like, this can make me sound really, I don't know, granola or whatever, but like when I watch nature and how God takes care of it, it gets me beyond my own navel-gazing selfishness when I try to define God by whether or not I get my way. I have a friend who said he reads biographies of missionaries to give him perspective, right? It feels a little more current than the Bible. And he's like, there's a difference between, you know, I lost out on this opportunity and this person's kid died, right? And he was like, and it helps me have a broader, healthier perspective. And I think that's something it's important for us if we're really going to be biblical people when it comes to our relationship with God is, is finding moments where the thing doesn't become everything. And the last thing I'd say to us is, is there's this real message in the idea of be your brother's keeper. And brothers, it's, it's, not, it's not a masculine. It, it doesn't mean men versus women. It just means your family. Be your family's keeper. Newer marshmallow study, I know you guys were wondering, is the marshmallow study going to come back? It is. And, and it suggests that children can delay gratification longer when they work together towards a common goal. A few years ago, these, a few years ago, these researchers, they, they kind of reenacted the marshmallow study. They used a cookie, and they took kids from very different cultures. They took kids from uh, industrialized Germany and then a small-scale farming community in Kenya. 
And, and so, they, so they took these kids and, and they took them into a room and they were in a room by themselves with a cookie on a plate and they were told they could eat it now or wait until the researcher returned and get two cookies, right? And, and some kids got the standard instructions, but other kids were told that they would get a second cookie only if they and a kid that they had met who was in another room were able to resist eating the first one. If they both cooperated, they both won. And they videotaped them, and there's all kinds of funny things there. But, but what they found in the results that was that kids from Germany and kids from Kenya who were, who were cooperating with other kids were able to delay gratification longer than those who weren't. And that working towards a common goal was more effective than going it alone. There's a lot more to that study. I'm not going to spend the time. It's, it's a really interesting idea. Basically, what they said was like, they were like, we're not willing to say that this is universal, but we think it might be universal in people, right? One of the, uh, one of the uh, scientists said, I'd be careful making a claim that this is a human universal, but are finding points in that direction since it can't be explained by cultural specific socialization. And that would be good news as delaying gratification is important for society at large. What if Abel was there to help Cain see and sort through some of his own stuff? What if that's why all of this was happening? We don't know. What if God was kind of saying like, hey, if, if you feel like something's off, well, we'll talk to the guy who doesn't feel like something's off. He's not your competition. He's your brother. What if Abel was part of Cain's solution rather than part of Cain's problem? Cain lost one thing but he let it make him lose almost everything. Sometimes the greatest thing that we can do when we're stuck and confused and depressed is look out and be our brother's keeper, right? First John says, that's how we know we belong to God even when our hearts want to condemn us. Is that we love people. Is that we care for people. And so this is what I would say, the next time you feel like you're losing and you don't know why, look for somebody to help. And that might be the key. It might be the key to where you need to be. Because when they win, the Bible says we win. Right? Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. You were made to be a keeper. And when you pursue being a keeper, you will always find your purpose. So here's the deal. We're not talking about marshmallows. Right? That's the hard part. Is that really what we're talking about is the real hurt out there that is deep for a lot of us concerning God. We thought if we did this, this, and this, then this would happen. Sometimes that's with our spouses. Sometimes that's with our kids. Sometimes that's with our future. And it's real and it's painful. And we think, God, I did this, this, and this, and I kept doing this, this, and this, and I kept, kept, kept doing this, this, and this, and my marriage was destroyed or my hopes for the future feel like they are as far away as they have ever been. And the question is really like, why should I still trust you? Why should I still trust 
God, when I've been doing this for so long and it didn't work out the way that I thought it would. You don't know the number of people that I meet with whose marriages were devastated. And what they would say is I checked all the boxes I was supposed to check when it came to God. And he didn't give me what I was supposed to get. Why should I still trust God? And they move on. And what I'm going to tell you is that this passage demonstrates, but really the whole of scripture demonstrates that God does the things he's asking us to do for us completely and better. Right? God resists the temptation of the marshmallow, right? God resists it with Cain. Cain murdered somebody. And God says, like, this is the curse. And Cain says, it's too much. And God says, okay. I get it. God adjusts God's plan for Cain's future out of grace and a desire for relationship. Right? It's hard to think about that way. But but God does it even more with Jesus, right? We, We see Jesus in the desert. And you know this story where Satan looks at him and he says, What God wants you to do is too painful, and it's going to take too long. And if you will just listen to me, I'll get you there faster. And Jesus says no. Right? Because getting to Jesus' goals faster would have competed with getting to God's goal of us. Right? God is willing to continue relationships when things seem broken. Right? He doesn't look in Cain and says, listen, this is your problem. He looks at Cain and he says, listen, let me help you. And finally, God became the best brother's keeper we could ever imagine. God looks at us and he says, you are your brother's keeper. But God answers the question the best in Jesus. And he says, actually, you're going to fail at this a thousand times. But don't worry, I'll keep all of you. Hebrews 12, I I really didn't even know this passage existed. I don't know what that says about me as a pastor, but but I didn't know that this passage existed until I was studying for this. Hebrews 12, 23 and 24 says this. The author says this, you, that means people who come to Jesus, you have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel through the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What did blood? What did the blood of Abel cry out from the ground for? Justice, right? Your brother's blood is crying out for justice. How is Jesus's blood a better word? Jesus's blood said, says, I will satisfy the justice and I will keep all those who can't. Why should you trust God? Why should you trust God when there's something in front of you that feels like it'll solve your problem? Because Jesus' blood has a better story for you than just trying to solve this problem. So this week, personally, I would, I would challenge you to do this, to wrestle with God, to wrestle with God. Some of you, it's a personal thing. You are not in the place you want to be. It does not seem fair. You feel like you did the right things. 
for some of you, it's looking around the world and looking around at what quote unquote Christians or non-Christians or whoever is frustrating you as doing in the world. And I would say, will you wrestle with God? Jacob wrestled with God. And that's how he got his name. But it's also how he got a limp. And what's funny is, is the older you get, the more you have to realize that physical ability doesn't serve you in the long term as much as emotional, spiritual, mental wisdom. And that comes from wrestling with a lot of things and a lot of challenges. Jacob did. Job did. Job went through all kinds of things that were not his fault at all. He wasn't even like Cain. But he wrestled with God. He held on. He didn't give up. Cain didn't. Cain said, I'm not going to do it. Maybe it's because he let his shame lead him to eliminate the only guy who could have helped. And so I would say for some of you, for some of us, the way you're going to wrestle with God this week is by talking to somebody about the things you're ashamed of and asking for help. That's what we mean when we talk about family of God. That's what we mean when we talk about relational discipleship. Broader, broader idea. So that's it for us, and I'm finishing with this. For our community, when you look out, personal is look in, community is look out. God wants both. We need to start being our brother's keepers. All of you probably know about the, the shootings, the murders that happened this week in our community. Um, and, and one of the things that has come up, there's one of the, I think one of the problems with our culture is we always look for a single reason, and usually there's multiple variables at play in, in anything, but we want a single reason to blame. But one of the conversations that's come up is that the murderer, the, uh, the shooter, was, a, um, was raised in a very conservative Christian environment. And that that maybe this was the source of why that person did that. I, I don't necessarily think it is, but that's not what we're here to talk about. What, what, what I want to say is that we live in a world where people look at the church and they say that could be the reason. And there is something there that means we are not focusing enough on being our brother's keepers. Is that if we were so engaged in God's mandate to be our brother's keepers, anytime someone said, well, that's because the church teaches that, they would say, are you out of your mind? The church doesn't teach that. The church says, care for people and look out for them. And if we're going to be a city on a hill in our community, we've got to start to give intentional space, aggressive space to saying, we are our brother's keepers. Our answer is yes and yes and yes. It's what we are known for. It's why next week we do we will do services service. It's why we looked around. What I needed to know was that Highlands as a church would never be three weeks away from people knowing from us being able to point to us being our brother's keepers and not just a bunch of people that sat in a room together. And so in the community this week, if you want to live as a city on a hill, what I would say is find ways to be your brother's keepers. It's really simple. Who needs help right now? How can you start? So if you want discussion questions, throw that last slide up there, Lou, then we'll pray. Is it on there? Start a discussion around any of those questions today. You can look at them, you can take a picture, you can do whatever you want. Let's pray. God, I thank you 
that the scripture isn't a book of rules and it's not a daily devotional, but it is a place to access relationship. God, I want to pray specifically for people who feel like they did everything right or they did enough right, and for some reason you've rejected them. God, I pray that you would give them strength and space to hang in, to wrestle with you, to deal with things and to ask for help. And then, God, I pray for us. I pray for us as a community. God, I pray that when people think about the church in Marietta, that they would say, well, I don't know what else is going on, but those people take care of people. They take care of people whether it benefits them or not. They take care of people whether they look like them or not. They take care of people because they, for whatever reason, believe that Jesus took care of them. I saw this in Jesus' name. Amen.